This is an ABC podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese with you for the Hack podcast. I'm wondering, are you looking for a rental? Tell me, how you doing? Because in the past year, we've been covering this national rental crisis, but it feels like things are only getting worse. So when is it going to end? We have to dive back into this issue because it's just getting more and more extreme. Like it's hard to go to a party or talk to a mate without rents and housing coming up. It's the one thing everyone's talking about all the time now. Not only can people not afford to rent, but those people who can afford it can't find a place to rent. Or you can't even find a place that you can't afford to rent. Like, it's just crazy, right? Also coming up on this podcast, we're explaining why Instagram and Facebook are letting you buy blue ticks just like Twitter. What kind of impact is that going to have? Because it's rolling out in Australia this week. We've got a lot to cover, so let's get into it. We paid our rent. You owe me $7,727. Yeah. Is that American dollars or real dollars? On Triple J. You know, living in a share house is a pretty unique experience. For some, it's the best time in their lives. Others cannot wait to get out and get their own place. And usually when you do make that jump, when you get your own place, you're saying goodbye to that period of your share house life forever. Not anymore, apparently, because as the national rental crisis keeps dishing up new nightmares, more and more of you are turning back to sharing. But even that is not the cheap option it used to be. As rents keep skyrocketing, it's now sometimes as expensive to be in a share house as it was to be in your own place just a couple of years ago. Is this you? Have you been forced to go back on the hunt for housemates? If it is, I want to know your story. You can call up 1300 0555 or send a message as well, 0439757555. ABC business reporter Amelia Turzon explains. Listen, Sydney, what's going on, man? Because I don't even live in a city like that. I live like 20 minutes. I, I live in f***ing ride, bruv. Not even in Bondi. You know, these are Bondi prices, you know. These are Darlinghurst prices that I'm seeing now per week, you know. That's Olin Tickers blasting on his socials after having his rent increased to $730 a week. Wherever you are in the country right now, the rental situation, it's getting ridiculous. Oh, actually, I just keep telling everyone it's crazy. That is Melody. Her and her partner Leo moved into their own apartment during the pandemic. At first, this was doable at $480 a week between two of them. Then their 12-month lease expired. Their rent was hiked by 25% to $600 a week. It's just one bathroom, one bathroom, and it's a small place. I only work for, like, some part-time jobs. So they ended their lease. They moved back in with their old flatmate. Obviously, this isn't ideal for a young couple. They're back to sharing a laundry and a fridge. And the new place, it's further from Melody's uni. It's really hard for me, like, moving in and out, in and out all the time. But I have no choices. Everywhere is getting expensive. Everywhere is, like not having a good prices. The number of share houses actually dropped at the start of the pandemic, but now property market analysts like Tim Lawless reckon this trend is going to reverse. That doesn't surprise me at all. I think we are going to see more and more share houses or group households forming 
uh, simply due to the fact that rental markets are as tight as what they are. A website you might have used to find a roomie, flatmates.com.au, just had its busiest month since 2019. Its community manager, Claudia Conley, says there is far more people looking than rooms listed. So we saw it really start to heat up in uh, November, December last year. And now on top of that, we've had the start of uni semester. So we've had a lot of domestic students move interstate to start their uni year. Um, and then added on top of that, um, we've seen a really big increase from migration. We've got a lot of international students coming back to Australia, which is great to see. Um, but obviously having that is adding more pressure to the rental market. And it's not just students who are dealing with those awkward sharehouse interviews. We're actually seeing a large increase of people over the age of 55 looking for share accommodation and also looking for a tenant to move into their home. We also see a lot of single parents um, looking for other single parents to live with. The average price of a rental is now 500 bucks a week in the regions and 570 in major capitals. Claudia reckons you'll still save on cash in a share house, but the average price of a room is now way more expensive than it was back in 2020. In the hotspot Bondi, you're up for 550 bucks a week. St Kilda in Melbourne, 440. Recent data showed that there was actually 12 million empty rooms around Australia. That's a huge amount of supply available. We'd love to see some of that, those properties being listed as a room to rent to help take pressure off the rental market. Melody and Leo are actually paying the same amount in their new share house as they were in their last place with just them. They're okay with this and they're just hoping they're not going to get another rent hike. They may increase the prices. I may need to move out again. So all the stuff in my house, I haven't really fully unpacked it. Pack on Triple J. Amelia Turzon with that story, and we've got lots of messages coming through on this. Lauren Caulfield says, trying to rent as a first-time renter is impossible. You're told at every place that the landlords only want someone with rental history. I can't even get a place to get rental history in the first place. Another person says, I am so sick of this city. What city is it? We don't know, but that comment could relate to any city across Australia. This is a national rental crisis, as we've been hearing. Time to dig into this a bit more. We've got an expert with us. Joey Maloney is a housing expert with the Grattan Institute. Hey, Joey, thanks for coming on Hack. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me. I mean, sorry to be so blunt about this, but what the hell is going on? I mean, you've been doing a lot of research into this rental crisis over the past year, and we probably know more than we did a year ago. So what is causing this? Oh, it's been an absolute wild ride in the rental market over the last three years. Um, and you're right, the situation's bad. It's terrible. The vacancy rate is below 1% nationally. It's below 1% in basically every capital city except Canberra and Darwin. And to put that in perspective, a healthy rental market has a vacancy rate of about 3%. So that's a rental market where people can find somewhere to live without going broke. So you can see we're at one third of that. Where this... It is, it is. Where this story starts is at the start of COVID, there was a really drastic change in what people wanted in their living situation. People wanted more space for themselves. One, because they were working from home. And two, because they probably were looking around at their flatmates and roommates and thought, there's no way I can do 24-7 locked down yeah. with you. I need some space to myself. Now, that was fine in the first instance. We saw share houses dissolve during the pandemic and people move into smaller households. And the reason that was fine in the first instance is because another thing we did during COVID was shut the door to migration. So there was no population growth. So there was more houses to go around. Now what we're seeing, 
well, the second stage of it is net migration's back up, in particular international students are back, and that means that we've got more people all wanting more space to themselves but not enough houses to go around. So that's caused this drastic tightening in the rental market where landlords are basically looking at the situation and being like, hey, demand exceeds supply right now. I've got an opportunity to put up my rent. So is the problem getting worse? Because that's what it feels like when we're hearing about it. You can't go to a party or talk to mates at all without this coming up. It's like the number one issue for young Australians. Is it getting worse? I suppose it depends what we mean by getting worse. In that it's certainly not getting any better. But what is happening, and I think Amelia's article gets at this, this is the next stage of the crisis in that, okay, people started off wanting more space to themselves, then they realise they can't afford it and then they go back into a living situation with more people. Now, they don't want that. The preference change from COVID's here to stay. People still want to be able to work from home and have enough space to themselves, but they just can't afford it anymore. So with that, with people adjusting their behaviour, that'll actually soften pressure on rents because it just means that there's less overall demand for rentals. But it's not a good situation because it means people are settling for living situations that they'd actually prefer not to have. I mean, we talk about supply a lot and you often hear politicians talk about this, especially in the federal parliament, you know, we've got to do something about supply. I've read though that part of the problem is construction times on homes are blowing out now. Why is that? What's going on there? Well, supplies going to lag demand in the housing market at the best of times. People can change what they want. You can change the population pretty quickly and it takes a long time to get new housing approved and then to build it. Now, what we've got on top of that is international supply chains for all the inputs that developers need to build new housing. That has caused this huge bottlenecks everywhere all over the world. So I saw some data from the Housing Industry Association. They said, in the best of times, it takes, you know, eight months from go to woe to build a new house. That's blown out to about 14, 15 months now. So the supply response to this increase in demand is not coming anytime soon. Do you think this increase in people moving back into share houses is going to lead to rents dropping? I don't think it'll lead to rents dropping, which is to say I don't think rents are going backwards. I think it'll slow the growth in rents. So, you know, we heard in the intro stories of rents going up 25% in one go. That'll soften. That'll soften, you know, to fall to 20, 15, 10. That'll slow down. But I don't think rents are going backwards anytime quickly. Okay. You're listening to Hackham, Dave Marchese. I'm speaking to housing expert Joey Maloney from the Grattan Institute about this rental crisis that, you know, you're experiencing right across the country. Joey, how do we solve this problem? What's the solution here? Because I imagine every side's got a different idea of what to do. What's your research told you? Well, there's your short-term solutions and your long-term solutions. The long-term solutions hop back to what we were talking about before about supply. You can't do anything about like the international supply constraints. But what you can do is help to create the conditions where it's easier to build homes in the people in the areas where people want to live. So, for example, if it's easier and cheaper and quicker to build an apartment block in, say, a Brunswick or a Marrickville, then there'll be more of them and then the rents in those places will be cheaper and that'll filter through to other suburbs as well. But that's, gonna, that's, a, that's a long-term project. In the short term, the best thing you can do is protect the vulnerable. And the quickest and most effective lever we've got to do that is the rent assistance payment in our welfare system. 
it's money that goes to renters. They don't have to spend it on rent. They can spend it on whatever they want, but the eligibility for it is based on rent and also income. So if you're a poor person facing the, the brutal brunt of the private rental market at the moment, an increase in rent assistance is going to just give you a little bit of extra money to make ends meet in the face of your rents going up. Got a lot of messages coming through. Cecilia from Sydney says, I live in Zetland, which is a suburb not too far from the city. She says, our real estate agent called me last Friday to tell us our lease was going up from 725 a week to 1200 a week. Now we have to move and we're really scared. Another person says, don't forget interest rate hikes for landlords. I'm paying $1,000 extra a month on my home loan. There's a landlord there. Steph says, when I first moved to my rental two years ago, $350 a week was a lot for me by myself. I want to move into state for job opportunities, but I feel stuck because I don't think a better deal exists. I rent a two-bedroom house in Canberra, but the other bedroom is too small to fit a housemate. So many problems here. We heard um, there from a landlord, Joey. Can you explain the link between interest rates and rent for people who might not understand? Like, how does that work? Is it as simple as every time interest rates go up, landlords have their repayments increase and then they jack up rents? It's not quite that simple, but I think there is a connection there. So, you know, when the RBA puts up the cash rate, that flows through to mortgages and that means, like the landlord on the line said, his interest costs have gone up. Now, you could, in it's only in a tight rental market that the conditions arise for them to pass on those costs. With the low vacancy rate is the key thing here because that's just fundamentally saying that there's too many people for too few houses. That gives landlords more power, more relative power to pass on these increased costs. If the vacancy rate was at a healthy level, landlords would be forced to eat that cost and they wouldn't be able to raise rents without scaring off tenants or making their house unattractive. And the last thing I want to say on this is it's really important to remember that landlord interest costs are subsidised in this country through a policy we have called negative gearing, which means they get to write off their lo- their net losses against their income. So there is some protection for them here through negative gearing, and that shouldn't be lost in the conversation. Does there need to be more that the federal government's doing? Does there need to be a bigger national response to this problem? Because I think for a long time we've heard, you know, national uh, federal politicians deflect and say, oh, this is a state issue. And then, you know, states have different ways of dealing with it. We know the government's got this housing accord that they've announced, but does there need to be more? Well, you've got the crux of the long-term problem in all housing policy in Australia, which is that governments at all levels have neglected to address the core problems at play. I would like to see out of the housing accord One, a commitment to the short-term solution to make sure that the vulnerable people in the private rental market aren't going to be left at a heightened risk of homelessness, which is to say to give them the income support they need to make ends meet while the rental market is brutally hot. But I really want to see the Housing Accord make a solid commitment with concrete like strategies in order to ha- towards accomplishing it to just build more housing to get more housing built and that includes affordable social public housing but it also includes market rent housing the more market rent housing is the more the the lesser rents will be and the better off private renters will be and Joey, question without notice, like is there, we've got a lot of people asking about Airbnb and that sort of thing. Is that an issue we know that's affecting the supply of rentals out there? This is a really interesting question and it's probably one that's a bit understudied. So my prior is that 
I don't think Airbnb is close to being a driving factor of what we're seeing in the rental market right now. Fundamentally, that's about the demand of for rentals. But you can't deny the fact that every property that goes from the long-term rental market to the short-stay rental market is one less property that someone can live in. So it makes a difference. Where I think it really makes a difference is in particular isolated um, touristy spots. So, for example, I grew up in a country town in Victoria called Dalesford that's a very popular tourist spot. A lot of the properties in that town over the last sort of 10, 20 years have been converted into Airbnbs and I've spoken to enough people from my hometown to know that it's very, very hard to secure a long-term private rental in Dalesford. So I think it's a problem that is like particularly cute in some areas, but in the aggregate, I don't think it's the main driver. All right. Really interesting stuff. We definitely appreciate your insight. Joey Maloney from the Grattan Institute, thank you very much for joining us on Hack. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me. And please let me know, how are you dealing with this rental crisis? What's been your nightmare? Also, if you're a landlord, what's your take? Because we do hear from people who say, look, um, you know, I've, there's nothing I can do about it. You can call in 1300 555 You can message in as well, 0439757555. As we just heard, there's a bit our political leaders can do. We asked the Federal Housing Minister, Julie Collins, to come on hack. She wasn't available. We do have a politician with us. Jenny Leong is a Greens MP in the New South Wales Parliament, and she's been speaking a lot about this. Hey, Jenny, thanks for joining us. Hey, Dave, thanks for having me. You're the member for Newtown, which is a popular place for young people to live in Sydney. I'm guessing you're hearing a lot of horror stories about renting at the moment. Absolutely. The electorate of Newtown is 11 square kilometres, and 60% of the people that live in the electorate are renters. Uh, that is a huge amount of pressure on people in the inner city, and we know that for years this has been a problem in the inner city, but what we're seeing is that this is a growing issue across the state and across the country. Um, it's clear that the rents are just too high and we need to do something about it. So the Greens in New South Wales are putting forward a plan to deal with this. Pretty dramatic. You want to freeze rents. What else do you want to do? What we want to see actually nationally is a commitment to freezing rents across the country. In New South Wales, we're saying we need to see an immediate freeze on rents. What we're hearing is these stories. They're not new. I was just chatting to people earlier. Almost everyone who is renting has a story of a rent hike. They have got too high and we need some immediate measures to be able to freeze them because people shouldn't be living under that rental stress. Beyond that, what that looks like for us is the Greens in New South Wales have a plan. We want to see an introduction of rent controls. We want an independent body that is actually tasked with the idea of controlling rents in New South Wales. We see it in New York. We see it in Germany. Big cities around the world have rent controls. And we're saying that the crisis in Sydney and New South Wales has got too big and that we actually need to see an independent body not driven by the uh, bottom line of uh, big investors and big developers setting the price for rents in this state as opposed to the idea of individuals suffering the incredible housing stress that they're currently feeling. So in terms of a, a rent freeze, which as you say is what the Greens are proposing across the country and national yeah. rent freeze, um, it's happened before, right? Because we saw this in Victoria during COVID, right? Yeah, these these measures around putting an end to, to evictions under certain circumstances, putting a freeze on rents, these happen for COVID-impacted individuals in New South Wales as well. We know that it can be done. We also have people living in New South Wales still that have are under a form of rent control because we've seen it previously decades and decades earlier. Um, so what we need to see is a situation where we're just recognising that housing is 
a basic right for people and that if people can no longer afford a place to live, that is a fundamental problem in society and and it needs government intervention. We put in place a rent cap, a rent freeze. We put in place a body to set and control rents. We do it for politicians' wages that we can absolutely do it for rents as well. So what about landlords who are telling us they're struggling with their repayments? Because, you know, we're hearing that now and they're saying, look, we're not all evil and rich. A lot of us are really struggling with these interest rates. We're just trying to keep up. I've got someone on the text line now saying we can't get enough money from our renters to come close to covering our costs. Um, So we're selling. What, What do you say to landlords and the impact this might have on them? Look, I appreciate that people are feeling housing stress across the whole spectrum, but what we need to look at first and foremost is that we're prioritising people that need a place to call home and that we remove the housing stress from those individuals. Obviously, that is going to mean that some landlords are making less money out of a speculative property market. And I make no apology, Dave, for saying that our priority is first and foremost to make sure that people have a place to live and call home and are not living in housing stress. My priority is not ensuring that landlords and big investors are making more money. Do you think, though, there is a risk of like stoking division in this argument by talking about like ruthless landlords and putting those terms out there? Look, I think the real issue here is the division that really needs to be looked at is not the division between the idea of landlords and tenants. The division that needs to be looked at is who are the politicians making these decisions. And what we see is almost all of the politicians sitting in our state and federal parliaments are themselves landlords. They are not experiencing the rental crisis. And we know that renters are feeling those hikes. Now, I appreciate that some people may have multiple investment properties and may lose out from the idea of us setting rent controls. That's a problem that they're going to need to deal with for their financial circumstances. For me, housing first and foremost, and for the Greens, housing first and foremost needs to be about people being able to have a safe place to call home. That's the priority. We wouldn't have the same kind of bidding and like auction style approach to healthcare or to schooling. And I think we would all agree that housing is as much of an essential service and right as education and health. We've got someone on the line. Ashley is an agent. Ashley, uh, what's your opinion of all of this? I Look, I understand that, you know, um, coming into the rental crisis, there's lots of people that are having seeing this rental hike. The only thing is if you're looking at free, making a freeze on rents is that you're looking at investors that are just going to sell, which actually makes the problem worse. Um, and then you're leaving, you know, the community with nowhere to rent. Yeah, okay. Um, Jen- with uh, hiking um, interest rates as well. Right. Jenny Leong, how do you respond to that? Look, I think if we got to a model where there were more houses on the market, then you know that there are many people at the moment that are renting that can't afford to buy. If you have more houses on the market, then potentially that creates space for more first homeowners to be able to purchase their home as opposed to renting off someone and paying off someone else's mortgage. There's a more complex picture here and just going back to that discussion about supply that I think really needs to be looked at is pre-pandemic in New South Wales, we had record housing supply and record levels of homelessness. Housing supply alone does not solve this problem. What solves the problem is the supply of affordable public and social housing, not just supply put into a market where people are endlessly trying to make money and profit out of other people's insecurity. Well, hey, there's, um, you know, a big discussion around this at a federal level. We know that there's an election coming up in New South Wales next month and it is shaping up to be a huge issue uh, for the election. New South Wales Greens and 
MP Jenny Leong, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us on Hack. Thanks so much, Dave. Great to be here. And we've got a lot of messages coming through. Someone uh, says renters shouldn't have to pay the landlord's mortgage. You made the investment. It's your problem, not mine. Another person says, how is it right that a bank can tell me I can't afford my own mortgage, but yet I can afford to pay someone else's mortgage? Look, there's a lot of comments coming through, but we've got to move on. Hack. Meta has announced that Instagram and Facebook users will now be able to pay for a blue tick verification. On Triple J. Well, first it was Twitter. Now Meta's putting its blue ticks up for sale. From this week, Instagram and Facebook users in Australia are offering ticks for cash, paid verification. Meta's promising it's going to make the platform safer, better to use. I'm wondering what you think, though. Are you tempted? Would you pay for a blue tick on Instagram? Let me know. 0439757555. Let's get the lowdown on what is happening here. Asha Barbashow is the editor of Gizmodo Australia and she's with us now. Hey, Asha, thanks for coming on Hack. Asha, I can't hear you there, but I think you're there. Is this move by Meta a surprise? Like, you've got your ear to the ground. I'm just wondering, were people in the tech world expecting this? Yeah, so, I mean, post-pandemic, advertising spend is down. Job cuts have hit the tech sector, uh, many sectors, but tech giants are also looking for another way to make up the shortfall. And it just seems that this is the latest move by Meta to get that extra bit of cash in. So how does this change work? Can you explain what's going to happen here? Yeah, so uh, the basic idea is that you'll get uh, a verified tick, uh, similar to Twitter, like you like you already said, but you'll also get increased visibility over your posts, reels, whatever, across Instagram or Facebook. So that's basically your posts will appear on other people's news feeds. Uh, the content that you create will be kind of preferenced in the algorithm. But you'll also get uh, extra impersonation protection, so fraudulent account or bots that are pretending to be you, and you'll have direct access to customer support. So Meta says this will be a real person. Yeah. How much is it going to cost, though? Yeah, so it's $19.99 a month via the web or $24.99 a month via your phone. And most of us use our phones for social media, so we're looking at merely $0.12 cents shy of $300 a year. Yeah, it's a lot of money. Like, you know, people pay less for other, you know, services they use every day, especially when you're used to getting these services for free. When Twitter did this, Asha, there was this whole thing where people were pretending to be famous or pretending to be brands and getting verified. Is there going to be a clear way of knowing who someone is and who, you know, making sure they are who they say they are? While the details aren't exactly nutted out fully on this one, you will have to submit a government-issued ID. So your passport, proof of age, driver's licence... And I can only assume that you'll be kind of forced to use your government-issued or government-cleared name. Uh, so that way it will, I guess, prevent you know me from saying that I'm you and, and vice versa and, and other people kind of pretending to be you. With Twitter, a lot of people were changing their names to Elon Musk just to, yeah. just to stir the pot a little. Yeah, we saw a lot of that. What's it going to mean for your posts um, on Instagram? Do we know? Like if you're verified, are yours going to jump to the top of people's feeds? That's what that's what I can assume from the kind of preferential treatment they're saying that you'll get. So I guess when you go to uh, I was about to call it a for you page, but that's a different app altogether. When you go to when you go to the, the, the you know the, the search page, uh, I would assume that your post, if you have paid for uh, Meta Verified, you would be forced up to the top, kind of shoved in people's faces more. Uh, even uh, would appear as a sponsored post potentially, but without the without the sponsored name as you get on your standard newsfeed already. Um, your account would be would be false there, but 
it's easy to think that Facebook and Instagram are free because you don't fork out cash to use them. But what you exchange to use a service is actually your data. So, but paying for this doesn't change how much invasive data uh, or how, how invasive their data collection on you is. So you still hand over your data plus your money. Oh, that's so true. A, there is a cost there, even if it's hidden. And um, Asha, we've only got 20 seconds left, but Australia's the guinea pig <laughs> with this, right? We've, we're the ones getting it first. Yeah, so usually we're the last, but we're the first now. <laughs> um, us as well as New Zealand as well. So I guess it, it is a trial. Um, nothing is set in stone, but I guess they're trying to trying to work out whether or not it'll work in the larger mo- larger market. Yeah. Uh, there is a larger customer base in America, so I guess start small. Oh, well, we'll see what happens. Rolling out this week, Asha Vavashal from Gizmodo Australia, thank you very much for your time. And we've got some people on the text line. Someone says another Instagram rort. Hack on Triple J. And that is all we've got time for on the Hack podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.